I grew up in a church where the Old Testament prophets basically had one major purpose for existing. You read the prophets in the Old Testament so that you could figure out what the prophecies were about Jesus so that you would have really good arguments for when you talk to your friends who are not Christians about how it was impossible that anything but Christianity could be the right way to live. I've got to admit, it's only been in the last five years or so that I've actually read the prophets carefully. And it's true. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of prophecy that speaks forward into or looks forward to the life of Christ. It's, it's all throughout every prophet. But yet every prophet begins to speak because he sees something that God would speak to. And he hears the words of God. And then he speaks them to the people. That's what the prophets do. They are a mouthpiece of sorts. And so when I read this passage from Daniel this morning, he sees this one who is like a human coming. This one who is given glory and kingship that all peoples and nations would serve him. And he's got a thousand thousands that are standing in his temple courtroom. He's got 10,000 times 10,000 people standing in attendance, which, if you don't feel like doing the math, is 100 million people. Because I fall down Wikipedia rabbit holes frequently, I decided to look up and see what the population of the world was during the time of the exile to Babylon, when the book of Daniel was written. And estimates are between 50 and 125 million people. So whether the prophet knew it or not, in saying that there were 10,000 times 10,000 people standing in attendance to this one who was a human who had come in glory and kingship, they were saying that every person on the face of the planet stood in attendance and serving the Son of God. And so we, we have this idea that comes from the Old Testament and from the prophets, as well as Jesus, something Jesus spoke about his own kingdom. We see this idea of people sitting in obedience and bowing to Jesus, the whole world serving him. But in two very true things, and we've smushed them together and made them less true because they should stand on their own. The idea that Jesus came to redeem those who are lost and to change us and make us new. Absolutely true. It's what he came to do, John 3, 17. But we also believe that Jesus is king of all, which he is. The problem comes when we smush those things together in our heads and we begin to believe that our job is to help Jesus make everybody like us. Because after all, if Jesus has made me a better person and Jesus has made me more holy and Jesus is the king of all, it's very tempting to say, well, then if only everyone would be more like me, life would be better. Have you ever actually stood in a throne room? 
like the kind of imagery that the Bible is talking about, where you've got a king with a thousand thousands in attendance. Or maybe like you've had to go to court and it wasn't just to watch or just to be a part of the jury. Maybe you've actually had to stand in court with the judge's attention on you, about ready to say what's going to happen to you, knowing that there's nothing you can really do about it. There are moments that we have that kind of foreshadow the kind of power that the prophets and Jesus himself claim. And I don't mean claim in the weak sort of, well, they claim it sense, but they have a rightful claim. Jesus has a rightful claim to that sort of power over the lives of each and every one of us. He has been given the authority to stand in judgment over you. That's kind of a fearful thing. The comfort to be found in that is that he is a good judge. You know, he's, he's not like just out to get you. He's not out to try and throw bolts of lightning like the Greek Zeus or whatnot. You know, like that's not who he is. He's a good judge. He, he wants what is best for you. And so that authority is used for your benefit. But there have been some times that I, I wasn't very well informed about the protocol of the place I found myself in. You know, you go to a new place and it's like going to a restaurant for the very first time. I don't know, am I seated? Should I find a table? How does this go? But I amplify that by about 50. Melanie and I, uh, in a trip for uh, Spring Harbor University, we went down to Jamaica, right? And so, new culture, lots of people doing lots of things that we had no idea what it was about or where to go. There was a restaurant called The Pork Pit that was just like about three blocks from our hotel that, by the way, some of the best over an open fire roasted pork I've had in my life would buy again. And so you walk up though and you're not sure because like there's a counter where you can order but there's also a giant open pit barbecue thing behind you and like do I ask them for food? Do I ask you? I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so we got to this, this church about a couple weeks into the trip just when we were starting to feel comfortable. And we walk into church and the door would have been like right around there up front, right? And so we walk in and the church is packed. Like easily three or 400 people, maybe five or six, right? And so of course... We didn't really look like the locals. So we walk in and everybody goes, what are they doing? And so we were kind of like looking just for the closest seat so we could sit down, right? And so we see an open pew and we're like, oh, great, we can sit here. This will be fine. So we all sit down, we get all arranged and it's fine. And then, you know, Jamaican culture, like they start everything just a little late. So we weren't too worried when I think it was 10 o'clock came and went. And then it was like 10.05. We were a little confused. And everyone around us looked confused too, but nobody was really talking about it. Until finally, this row of white middle-class Spring Arbor students were approached by one of the leaders of the church and they very politely said, uh, excuse me, our deacons can't start this service because you're sitting in their seats. Could you move, please? <laughs> and at that point, we all realized, Oh my goodness, that's why this pew was open. <laughs> we had come in and we had taken the seat of not one or two, 
of all 12 or so of the church elders down front. And so they were all sitting outside going, well, we'd like to walk in and start church, but there's nowhere for us to sit. Will someone please tell me these clueless American students that they need to move so we can start church? So we'd walked into a situation where we didn't realize it, but we were being kind of rightfully judged as being clueless. And so this, this idea that all of a sudden there are these, these rules, there's this, this way things ought to be that we just didn't know. Like that level of being clueless, like I, I can't help but think like when I read through Pilate talking to Jesus in the book of John, I, I see that kind of talking past each other. They just don't have the context for what the other guy's talking about. Right, because Pilate, he's a, he's a Roman governor. Right? The rule of Rome was keep the peace. The more peaceful things are, the more we get to trade. The more trade there is, the more taxes we get to collect. And that pays for the military that keeps you safe. Keep the peace. So Pilate went to Judea, which is known for having this really rambunctious, angry group of people known as the Jews. And they are known to start riots and disrupt regional trade over the tiniest little things. Like, we put images of the emperor in their temple, and they thought that was a big deal and started a 50-year war. I don't know, it wasn't 50 years. It was shorter than that. Rome did not take long to clean that up. But you get what I'm saying. Like, all of a sudden, so Pilate is in this place where he doesn't really speak the local cultural language. He doesn't really fully understand what's going on. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief temple people hand over this guy and say, this guy has claimed to be the king of the Jews, Pilate goes, huh? Okay. Do you want me to, to kill him? Why? I know what you're telling me. But he, he knew he was missing things. And so being a good governor, he doesn't want to act without knowing why or knowing what possible repercussions it could have. And so he talks to the guy. And so you look at this, this conversation that he has and he says, are you the king of the Jews like they said you were? Because if you say yes, this is easy. I get to put you into all sorts of punishment and Everyone's happy except you, and we can move on with our lives. Everything will stay peaceful. Instead, Jesus responds with this, well, are you asking because you actually want to know, or is that just what people told you? And so Pilate admits, he's like, well, I'm not a Jew. I don't really know what's going on, but they handed you over to me. So (laughs) what did you do? Why are they mad? Why do they want you dead? And instead of answering, Jesus just says, well, my kingdom isn't of this world. My kingdom were from this world, my fathers would be fighting. You know, like they they wouldn't want me to be killed because once you're dead, your kingdom is over if your kingdom is of this world. But my kingdom is different than that. And so Pilate thinks he's finally getting somewhere. He's like, oh, so you're a king. And Jesus is like, well, you say I'm a king. But he says, for this I was born, and this I came to the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who listens to the truth or belongs to the truth, they know my voice. So if you had to take, like let's say someone gave you absolute control over the American democracy. You could do anything you want and change anything you wanted. And you had about a month to research and make the wisest changes you could. Just think about it for a minute. What would you change? I mean, I'm sure everyone's got a list. You know. But yet, when given the opportunity, people wanted to make Jesus a king. They wanted to give him that kind of control. They wanted to give him that kind of power. And he usually found a way of sneaking off and going and praying for a bit. When Jesus is asked by Pilate, are you a king? He says, well, I speak the truth. People who belong to the truth listen to me. Which is kind of a confrontational thing to say to the man who's trying to decide whether or not to kill you. And so we have this, this issue, right? Where we live in a time where we, we believe rightly that God is the God of all peoples and all nations and all cultures and all languages. We believe rightly that at the end of all things, all na- Bye, Martha. We believe rightly that at the end of all things, we're just going to take a break. You had now. Oh, you need to shake my hand too. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm not even mad. We've got this fundamental disconnect, right, between what we think the nations are for and what God seems to think they're for. See, we think the nations are to enforce what we think is right. If only the laws were different, if only the Constitution were just a little bit better at protecting our brand of justice, if only the judges agreed with us once they were appointed, if only we had just a little bit more control and we could make this nation more what we think it ought to be. If only we could control things and make them holy and righteous by taking control of the powerful and then making the not powerful do what we need them to do, then all would be well. And yet when given the opportunity, when Jesus was on this earth, he spoke in parables. He grabbed 11 young fishermen and one slightly older fisherman Peter was the older one. And he just kind of taught them for three years or so. He spoke the truth. And the people who belong to truth listened to his voice. They were changed by what he had to say so that even when he was killed and even after Jesus rose again, and even after he ascended and he is no longer with us physically, his truth remains. 
His commands remain. And we we find ourselves in this kind of situation where we remember that he said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. When asked, what do I have to do? What What are the greatest commandments? He says, well, you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. When asked, well, I don't know, how do I gain eternal life? He says, you must be born again. And then the the teacher, the the religious expert says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, well, you don't really get much of anything, do you? It's in the context of that discussion where Jesus is being mystical and esoteric and confusing and vague and frustrating. We just want to say, Jesus, tell us what to do and then we'll go make an army and go make people do it for you. And Jesus is like, yeah, but have you been born again? Do you love one another? Do you love your neighbor? And by your neighbor, I mean that guy who worships at the different mountain over at that other place that you think is morally wrong. Do you love him the way you love yourself? Do you love God with everything you have? You're like, Jesus, no, you don't understand. We want a kingdom. And I think Jesus' response is that we have to think bigger than that. We have to think better than that. We have to think more like justice and less like power. And so we talk about Jesus as Christ the King. And I think more than anything else, what Jesus models for us as Christ the King is this conversation he has with Pilate where he could have bargained for his life. He could have tried to recruit Pilate to the right side and turn the Roman Empire into something godly. And instead, he talks to Pilate, to the man standing in front of him. He says, well, well, are you asking me because that's what you think? Or are you just doing what everyone else tells you to? Because I want to talk to you. Because this isn't about the decision you're about to make. This isn't about what's going to happen to me. Jesus knew what was going to happen. I get the feeling Jesus was trying to help Pilate be better. To try and help him to change, to be a more just governor. Like, otherwise, why would you ask these confusing questions? Why not give Pilate the answers he needs or wants? Instead, Jesus, he tends to ask questions and give us things to think about when all we want is certainty. We want to know we're right. We don't want to think about whether or not we're right. I think it's one of the reasons why it's so much easier to read the Bible than it is to sit in silence and listen to God in prayer. Because the one gives us answers, it gives us ammunition, it gives us something to to grasp onto and to hold as, as solid, which is good and necessary. But sometimes I think it is even better to sit and listen to the voice of the one who speaks truth. To be someone who says, I don't belong to my viewpoint, I don't belong to what I think is right, I don't belong to what I've been told in the past I ought to be. What I belong to is I belong to the words of Christ. And those words are still speaking. 
which means what was right for me yesterday, God may say, okay, that was good. That was a good next step for you, but I've got another one. Let's grow a little more. And so for me, Christ the King Sunday isn't about coming in to the throne room of Christ and hoping you don't sit in the deacon's chair. It's not about going to the pork pit and wondering where you're going to order your next meal. I don't know who to talk to. (laughs) It's not about being in a courtroom and anxiously awaiting, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? For me, Christ the King Sunday is recognizing that Christ's kingship comes from being truth. He is the embodiment of all that is good and right and holy. And so we listen and we obey. That is a deeper thing than just reading the Bible, as good as that is. We can do more. And so as we talked about a couple weeks back, you know, when people ask me, why do I go to church? Sometimes in talking with you all, I hear God. Sometimes in trying to do the right thing and take care of you guys when you have something you you would like me to do for you, I hear that voice that speaks truth. And it helps me to be better. No offense, but I don't come to church for you. I come to church because I need to be here. I I don't know how to do anything else. So when we we come to communion, this is, to me, a pure expression of our dependence on God. Because if God is not in this, this is bread and juice. And that's all that it is without God. It's a nice thing we do. It's maybe a nice ritual, maybe it helps us to feel comforted. But that's all it can do unless it is the body and blood of Christ. Unless it is the one who sacrificed himself that we might be able to hear truth. So as we come this morning, I invite you to take what you think you know about what God needs you to do tomorrow or today and to let go of it and listen to the new word that God may have for you.